You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, that is, uh, as you can tell, not the book of Acts. So we're going to take a one-week break uh, from Acts, and then we're going to, Lord willing, back into it next week. Um, I do want to begin with this, and if you were a part of Redemption Hill Church from the beginning, you, you may have heard this statement, and I'm going to revisit part of it this morning. It's basically our Michigan mission statement, right? If you go to our website and you click and you kind of scroll down, you, you read this. Redemption Hill Church exists, right? Why are we here? Why, why do we plant this church? Why do we show up? Redemption Hill Church exists to make immature, make immature excuse me, disciples of Jesus Christ in the Des Moines metro. So that's kind of our mission statement. So when we have a program in church, we want to start something new. The question becomes, does it fit this mission statement? If it doesn't, we're not going to do it. We exist to make immature disciples of Jesus Christ. In particular, right where God has planted us. In the Des Moines Metro. Now, th- there is a lot that can be dissected and applied from this mission statement, but this morning I just want to focus on the first part of the mission statement. As I've pondered the first part of this mission statement, I realized that glorifying God, us, to become the glorify God. It impacts how we live, right? Before we do something to the glory of God, we need to be captured by the glory of God. So while I will end this sermon with a call, really just just what we read in Isaiah 6-8, to be sent out, right? I'm going to spend the majority of our time this morning Stirring up our affection for the glory of God. Um, in other words, you think of it like this. Uh, you become what you behold. Maybe some of you have heard that. You become what you behold. So that's my agenda this morning. Um, that's me just kind of like throwing all, all my cards on, on the table. Just told you where I'm going, and I'm going to show you from Isaiah 6 how we get there. You, can get, you also can think of it this way. And I was challenged by this thought this morning. You know, whatever you do with your your time and money, right, reveals what you're captured by. And to some degree, whatever you do with your time and money reveals what has taken a hold of you. Like, it's college football season, right? Left to myself and my own devices, I probably could watch college football all Saturday. Start me with game day at 9 or 10 a.m., and I'll run it till 10 p.m. at night, right? Who's playing? Don't care. Love college football, Right? But what does that indicate about me, right? If I'm going to spend 12 solid hours on the couch, you know. I have become beholden to college football. It's taken a hold of me. You talk about family. That could do it to us, right? Ministry. Pastors can become beholden to ministry where you forget the message of why we're in ministry. So, 
Isaiah 6 is a passage that can help us redirect how we think about our time, our money, our affection to the most appropriate place where all of that needs to go to God. When we don't behold God as our all-satisfying joy, when we're not captured by the glory of God, we will find it difficult to be on mission with God. Let's be honest. Let's have an honest moment here. We all go through these. uh, There are moments in our life where our view of God becomes dim, right? Where it's like, oh, I just feel it's like a dry season because of sin or complacency, indifference. We can fight the temptation to like replace God with in my mind. I'm thinking about these teensy trinkets that you get at an antique store. I've been to a few, not on my own volition, but somebody else's, right? And you're like, oh, I want that. And, and where does it end up? On a shelf to be forgotten or put into a box? Not, not a dig, just saying. Antique stores have that tendency, right? We can treat God like that. We can, we can, or we can replace God with all this stuff. stuff. As we read and ponder Isaiah 6, 1 to 8, I would like to ask you a few questions to help you redirect your affections to Jesus. Two questions as we go through this text. Number one, am I, insert your name, beholding or giving glory to something or someone other than Jesus? And, two, how am I responding to Jesus? Or how am I responding to the holy God of the universe? How you answer the first question will influence how you answer that second question. The reality is this, right? The churches do not get planted. Missionaries are not sent Neighbors will not hear the gospel unless we are continually captured, awestruck, viscerally moved by the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We must be about someone bigger than ourselves. Isaiah responded to someone bigger than himself. We read in Isaiah 6, Isaiah's response to God happened because he was captured by his glory. Isaiah's response wasn't trivial. It wasn't like out of duty. I must do this. But it happened because of a more clear understanding of the majesty of God coupled with this deep, deep understanding of his own sin and depravity. We read in Isaiah 6, the prophet coming to a confluence of truths which radically changed his life forever. As a result, there was only one appropriate response from Isaiah. Complete surrender to God. With all that as the opening salvo, let me provide some context about the importance of Isaiah 6 within this book, Isaiah. One commentator says this about Chapter 6 of Isaiah. Chapter 6 towers like a majestic peak over the surrounding terrain. 
and is clearly of central importance for the message of the book. Just towers over the rest. 66 chapters, right? And chapter 6 just towers over the other 65. This chapter is central because we get a glimpse of the glory of God and we see God wrecking Isaiah. He wrecks him and then he sends him loose on mission and with a message. Oftentimes, Isaiah's message, right, wasn't pleasant. If you read through Isaiah, <laughs> what is the message? Judgment. Justice is coming. God's righteousness is going to be seen. Here are a few verses from Isaiah 3. So I'm going back a few chapters, highlighting Judah and Jerusalem's disobedience and, idol and idolatry, which would shape Isaiah's proclamation to them. Again, this is some context for how we, how we get to Isaiah 6. For behold, the Lord of hosts is taken away from Jerusalem and from Judah, support and supply, all support and bread and all support of water. And then we jump down a few verses later in that particular chapter. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord. Defying what? What does it say? Define his glorious presence. Jerusalem and Judah were hoarding glory for themselves and defying God's glorious presence. The situation does not appear to be good, and God needed someone to deliver a message of forthcoming judgment to them. Now, if we pause for a moment, let's think about this. We can be like Judah and Jerusalem. Do a heart check. Anyone's honest with themselves knows that, know that is true. We can hoard glory for ourselves and reject God's glorious presence. However, you know, the primary message of Isaiah isn't about how and when judgment will come. Although that is definitely the strand that runs through the entire book. But it's not the primary message. Not the primary reason why after Isaiah 6, Isaiah the prophet goes out and begins to preach. The primary message is about God bringing spiritual renewal to his people. So that God's people can, what? Be a blessing to the nations. When you read all the way through the book of Isaiah, you see that judgment is supposed to lead to salvation. Biblical, it's interesting, biblical scholars refer to the book of Isaiah as like the fifth gospel. And when you, when you read through Isaiah 1 all the way to Isaiah 66, and you pay attention, you see it. Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to atone for sin. Jesus is coming. God's aim in the book of Isaiah is to bring about loving correction with the hope of seeing souls revived. The prophetic judgment, which we read about in the remainder of Isaiah, is supposed to lead toward inner, inner transformation. Inner transformation that begins and ends with being captured by the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In verses 
1 to 8 of chapter 6, we get a picture of how inner transformation takes place. We get a picture of how inner transformation causes a person to respond. So, for those here who could use a little inner transformation, or change, or personal revival, right? This passage is for you this morning. These precious eight verses um, can wreck you, and then restore you, and then send you loose on God's mission. It can wreck you, restore you, and then send you loose. So let's, let's dive in to this awesome passage in more detail. To help you navigate this passage, I've, I've created four headings in which I'll walk through this passage. Um, first, Isaiah's vision of God. That's just kind of verses 1 to 4. Isaiah's confession we read about in verse 5. I, uh, Isaiah's cleansing, which, oh man, that is a remarkable scene. Verses 6 to 7. And then Isaiah's commissioning, verse 8. And really it's the following, but we'll look at verse 8. In, in verse 1 of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, he provides us with some historical information, right? The date in which this vision happened, in which he received this vision, right, is the year that King Uzziah died, so 740 B.C.-ish. But I, but I do think Isaiah is actually saying something more in verse 1. He is less interested in about historical details and more interested in telling, ab- telling us about the sovereign Lord. Here's the first part of verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Isaiah is making a Christological statement. I do think all of this passage is highly Christological, which shouts, Jesus atones for sins, Jesus saves. In verse 1, Isaiah is comparing an earthly king, an earthly dead king, with an everlasting king. This king Uzziah, who ruled and reigned on earth, is now dead and buried in the earth. But the sovereign Lord, who rules and governs all things, he is high and lifted up. His reign is everlasting. Verse 1 declares that the king of the universe sits enthroned and looks down upon earthly kings. Presidents, prime ministers, governors, representatives. Parenthetical statement. Remember that when the elections come around. This king is the one who is ultimately sovereign over everything he has created. Regardless of the power structure that people create. Isaiah continues to describe this heavenly king in his temple. Here's the other half of verse 1 and following into verse 2. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him, above the heavenly king that is, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the whole is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of your glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke 
soak in the imagery there. This is one of those passages where I'm like, let your imagination go wild. Verses 1 to 4 are majestic. It's the merging of heaven and earth with the glory of God on display. An earthly temple and a heavenly throne room come together. Come together. What Isaiah is describing is supposed to put us in awe. The same king sitting on the throne in this chapter is the same king that we worshipped in song this morning. Think about that. The seraphim were giving him praise. We were singing him praise. He's the same king who communes with us in prayer. I mean, just picture that in your mind. I spoke about that last week when we were talking about prayer. The train of the Lord's robe fills the entire temple. There's not an inch of the floor of the temple that isn't covered by his magnificent train of his robe. In verse 2, Isaiah introduces to us the seraphim, right? Don't bump into them too much in the Bible. Seraphim in the Hebrew language literally means burning ones, right? Each seraphim had six wings. We don't know everything about them, but but make no mistake about it, their presence matters. Their presence tells us something about God's holiness. They are angelic-like beings whose purpose is to worship the Lord. And how are they worshiping? Like I already said, they're praising the king. They're singing. And their praise includes a declaration, right? God is holy. holy and sovereign God of the universe is the object of their affection. So go back to my opening statements just for a moment. How do you direct your affections? We're not told how many seraphim were present But there were at least two calling to one another in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In in verse 3 of Isaiah 6, we read of the only time in the Old Testament when an attribute of God is elevated to the third degree. Right? Only in this place in the Old Testament is a characteristic of God named three times in succession. Got this from R.C. Sproul. Not only that God is holy, not only that he is holy, holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. Now, we have to ask this specific question. Why this attribute? Why not love, love, love? Good, good, good. But we have holy, holy, holy. I think we have this particular declaration here in Isaiah because the holiness of God helps us understand the glory of God. The holiness of God is the manifestation of God's glory. It's the manifestation of God's glory in which the seraphim were completely captured by. God is so holy, the seraphim can't even look at him. Right? 
They have to cover their face with their wings. They even cover their feet with their wings. The covering of their feet might, might seem strange to us, but it could remind us of the time Moses took off his sandals when he was in the presence of the holy God, right? Uh, we read about this in Exodus 3. You might remember it. Moses saw the burning bush on Mount Horeb, and the bush would burn without being consumed. God was present, which meant the entire area was holy, including the ground. Moses took off his sandals out of reverence to God. The, the ground itself wasn't holy, right? Just dirt and a bush, trees. But the presence of God made it holy. In both passages, Exodus 3 and Isaiah 6, the holiness of God indicates something very specific for us. The holiness of God means God is, in a real sense, separated from his creation and devoted to seeking his own honor and glory. There are aspects of humanity that don't compare to God. What, what I'm not saying, God is like deistic, completely hands off from everything he created. No, God's separateness, his holiness, has to do with what? Our sin. Our sin. The holiness of God means that he is completely removed from sin, and the holy God must execute judgment and wrath because of sin. Justice must be administered against sin because God is holy. We read in Isaiah 6, the holy God of the universe, in kindness and love, even though he can't have anything to do with sin, wants a relationship with his people. So even though God cannot have sin in his holy presence, God always had a plan to redeem his people from their sin. God the Son, Jesus Christ, was incarnated. He became flesh, came to earth, so that we could learn from him and refract his glory by also living in holiness. So how do you demonstrate the glory of God in your life? You live in holiness. You walk in a manner worthy of Christ. You walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. People see Christ in you. But how did Isaiah, think about this, how did Isaiah, who lived over seven centuries before the birth of Christ, become redeemed? Right? Fair question. Some seminary student asked that somewhere. Hey, how'd that happen? God moved upon his cold, dead, and sinful heart. I'm going to show you. Isaiah's confession in verse 5 and his cleansing in verses 6 to 7 show us the mercy of Christ. It shows us the mercy of Christ. Here's Isaiah's confession in verse 5. And I said, woe is me. For I'm lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, just, just get in the scene with him just for a moment. Isaiah considers himself utterly ruined for two reasons. First, he realizes he's sinful. Second, he has seen the holiness of God. 
up until chapter 6 in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah's sin has blinded him to some degree from the transcendence of God's glory. One commentator says it like this. As sincere as his worship has always been, Isaiah has not been a man in love. His profession of faith has been orthodox, but empty, with little heart awareness of the grandeur of God. The shift in Isaiah's heart can be easily applied to all of us here. Like, are you a man or woman in love with God? Is your faith empty? Or are you aware of the grandeur of God, the majesty of God, the glory of God? Up until Isaiah 6, it could be that Isaiah sincerely feared God, but had not had the grace of God move upon his soul. We, we can live like Isaiah, pre-Isaiah 6, right? Um, I've said things like this before. You know, I'm a good person. I'm not bad. I'm better than most people, right? Uh, that person's sin over there, you know what? It's not as bad as mine. You know, I come to church, which, you know, indicates some type of commitment to God. The simple fact that I showed up this morning proves something, right? I want you to really see this, because Isaiah's confession in verse 5 turns these thoughts on its head. Here's what I mean. When you acknowledge your sinfulness, and you've seen God's glory, you go from saying, you know, I'm not a bad guy, to I'm a wretched sinner. You go from saying, I do a lot of good things for God, to there is absolutely nothing good I can do apart from the grace of God in my life. In essence, you go from saying, look at me, look at Sean Powers, to no, look at God. Look at him. Look what he has done. Look what he continues to do. In my weakness, he is made strong. You go from holding on to glory from, for yourself to giving God glory for who he is. Not a popular message in our culture today, but recognizing your moral corruption is a game changer, absolute game changer, because the object of your affection begins to shift from your sinful being to the God who is worshipped by the seraphim. Your affections turn toward a God who is completely separated from your sin, but who still provides a way for you to have a relationship with him despite your sin. Another truth about Isaiah's confession is that he has seen God 
with the eyes of his heart. This might seem obvious from reading verses 1 to 4, but consider the implications. His confession is the only appropriate response to this vision. His sin, in light of that God is holy, could bring him to only one conclusion. Woe is me. Woe is Sean Powers. For I am lost. And I am a man of unclean lips. I've wondered why this verse focuses on his lips as like the touch point of his sin. You know, why, why lips? What's going on here? Why are unclean lips the problem for him and the people of Israel? Well, in general, to be unclean in the Old Testament means to be a person unfit for service to God. Uh, and to have unclean lips leads to the root problem of, of humanity's sin, right? Which is what? Namely, the corrupt heart. Your heart. Proverbs 4, 23-24 sums up well what I think Isaiah realized. Keep your heart with all vigilance. From, from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you cro crooked speech and put devious talk from you. Isaiah's confession about his own crooked speech and devious talk, I think, is sincere and real. His confession is not just about his lips, but it is about his heart. Ray Ortland again, describes it so well. It's not on the screen. I didn't have time to put it into the slides, but it's super helpful. For the first time, we read in Isaiah 6-5 that Isaiah sees that he's typical of his generation. He's just like the regular other guys whose faith was unthinking and glib. Their mouths were not filled with sophonic worship, but with flippant repetitions of self-justifying excuses. But now, Isaiah sees himself because he sees God. And something new is entering his heart. Humility. As a result, Isaiah's heart is becoming captured by God. The scene described by Isaiah isn't finished. As a matter of fact, it's just getting started, but I won't keep you here all day. Just because the holiness of God separates himself from all creation does not mean God does not provide a way for sinful people to be in his presence. It doesn't mean God isn't redeeming his creation. He surely is. God, in his mercy, had a plan for Isaiah. And God used the seraphim to cleanse Isaiah. One of the seraphim took a piece of hot coal from the altar, and he touches Isaiah's mouth. The seraphim touches Isaiah's mouth. Why? In order to get to his heart. What happened after the coal was placed on his lips? Again, verse 7. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and a sin atoned for. Let me, let me reframe verses 6 to 7 for you. You might read verses 6 to 7 and think, What is going on here? Right? Um, we have seraphim taking tongs, picking up burning coal. And then touching Isaiah's mouth, like, you come over for a barbecue, got, you know, coal there. I'm not going to be like, hey, <laughs> your turn, right? It's not like church practice. I'm not looking to do that. Uh, it's not an activity we want to do in programs. What's going on here? What does God have to do with all this? What is he saying to us? This is a theologically rich scene. 
and it goes deep. A seraph uses the tongs, grabs the coal, and the seraph doesn't use the tongs because the coal was hot. After all, remember, seraph means burning ones, right? The seraph uses the tongs to grab the coal because it's holy. It's a holy piece of coal that takes away guilt and atones for sin. When the coal is placed upon Isaiah's mouth, it doesn't hurt his unclean lips. But it heals him. This is the mercy of Christ at work in Isaiah's life. When we step back and take a, like a panorama view of the entire Bible, we quickly discover that this piece of coal symbolizes the finished work of Christ on the cross. Isaiah experienced amazing grace. The amazing grace that we sing about is the amazing grace he experienced. It's amazing. This uh, typological event shows us the Holy Son of God that came to earth to die on a cross to atone for the sins of all his people, offering forgiveness to those who confess, which is what Isaiah was doing. For Isaiah, the burning coal in his mouth points to the day when there will no longer a need for a coal to be touched on someone's mouth for temple sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins because the greatest and final sacrifice will accomplish it all and has accomplished it all. Hebrews 9 explains it so well. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, like no need for ongoing sacrifices like in the Old Testament. As the high priest enters the holy temple every year with blood not in his hands, not of his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice of himself. What Isaiah constantly experienced through the temple through the burning coal demonstrates and shows us the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Not only is wrath removed and forgiveness granted, but the distance between God and Isaiah has been overcome. The atonement of Christ had reconciled Isaiah to a holy God. All Isaiah could do at that point is surrender. Surrender. So if the picture of the throne room of God wasn't enough to put you in awe, to capture your heart. I hope the atonement of Christ could do it. Again, another commentator, Barry Webb. Isaiah is cleansed, not by his own efforts, but purely by the grace of God. So let me be abundantly clear about what's going on in these verses. This passage is not merely about the calling of Isaiah to be a prophetic instrument to Israel and Judah. It's not just about his response, which we will get to in a moment. This chapter in the entire book of Isaiah is about the triumph of grace 
It's the triumph of grace in God's redemptive work for his chosen people to be atoned by Christ. Because of the atonement of Christ, the guilt and burden of our sin is on Jesus. What's going on here in Isaiah 6 is like 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but what he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. It's also Matthew 20.28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And last but not least, Matthew 26, 28, when Jesus spoke to his disciples at the Last Supper, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. The power of the cross. This is truly remarkable. The power of the cross works Greek theological word, works eschatologically backwards and forwards. It works backwards and forwards. The power of the cross redeems God's people for all time, which was always a part of God's perfect plan. Do these expressions of God's glory in Isaiah 6 grip you? I hope so. Even if you describe the state of your soul as spiritually dry at the moment. I hope Isaiah 6 stirs your affections for Jesus this morning. And we've all been there. Let's just not deny it. Let's just call it what it is. We've had those seasons. So even even after this sermon, if you think everything I said was just out of order and disjointed, I don't care. Go back to Isaiah 6. Allow that to nourish you. Let it be water. In a dry land. Let it stir your affections for Christ. Because there is no verse 8. <laughs> There's no verse 8 for you, for Redemption Hill Church, or Isaiah. Unless we have been gripped by God's glory seen in the gospel. So I hope by observing Isaiah's vision of God, by connecting with his confession, and by becoming humbled by Christ's atoning work on the cross... You become captured with God himself. If that's you, then verse 8 makes a whole lot of sense, right? Especially as we consider the mission of God to reach people with the gospel. So here's verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Whom shall go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. If you haven't already seen it, perhaps verse 8 is further proof that the fingerprints of Christ are all, all over this passage. This is truly remarkable. I geek out in this kind of stuff. Sorry. The, the sovereign God, the Lord, refers to himself in the plural. Like, not just like English plural. We're talking like, you know, Hebrew plural. In the plural. Whom shall I send? Whom shall go for? Us? The one and true and living God referring to himself in the plural isn't unusual in the Old Testament. In Genesis 1.26, we read that God created man in his own image. And he refers to himself in the plural. Amazing. In Isaiah 6, the use of the plural further magnifies for us the atoning work of Christ in this passage, symbolized by the coal. And Isaiah's response to the triune God becomes even more striking. Let's allow Spurgeon to chime in. I call to your attention again the fact that this is the voice of the one God. And it is also the question of the sacred trinity. 
whom shall I send? And who will go for us? The Father, Son, and Spirit thus question us. Shall not the threefold voice be regarded? Shall we not regard and respond to the triune God when he calls us? And what of Isaiah's response to the triune God? Well, it's a life captured by the glory of the triune God. Isaiah is, what we see here is Isaiah is like growing in faith and understanding of who God is. And as he's growing in faith, he's also going in faith. Does that describe you? God's question to Isaiah in verse 8 wasn't met with a half-hearted response. It wasn't a response that waffled at the prospect of following the will of God, right? Should I go? Should I not go? This is a little weird. What do I do? No. He was all in. He's at the poker table with all the chips, and he's like, nope, I'm in. I'm going all in. I've seen too much. My heart's been captured. I'm all in. Like Isaiah, we need to listen to the voice of God, right? Like, we got to listen to the voice of God. God calls on all Christians to, one, behold his glory, and two, to declare his glory revealed in the gospel. Perhaps after reading about Isaiah's vision and confession, it might be tempting to say to yourself, or to me, Pastor Sean, listen, calm down. I haven't seen God like Isaiah, right? Or we could talk about John who wrote Revelation. I haven't seen this type of vision, you know? Settle down. How can I possibly relate to this? Fair question. Here's how I would respond. But Christian, you have seen God. You have seen God. You might not have seen God with your physical eyes, like in a vision that we read here in Isaiah 6, but you've seen God by faith with the eyes of your heart. The moment God broke in on your cold, dead heart and gave you faith, you began to see began to see. You have seen the Son of God which was illuminated to you by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Scriptures. And proof that you have seen God is the fruit of humility which you received and caused you, Christian, to confess your sins. Right? The moment you confess your sins is the moment you get on your knee and you realize This world is not about yourself. It is about God. And that is a humble act. Brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit giving you faith to do it. If you are captured by the glory of God because of the work he has done in your heart with the gospel, then you worship the same God as Isaiah. 
And God the Holy Spirit empowers you to respond like Isaiah. Because when you're captured by the glory of God, you will respond. That's the bottom line truth. When God asks you, who's going to reach this guy or gal in the next office or cubicle? You're going to say, hey, here I am. Send me. When God asks, who's going to share the love of my son with your neighbor? Here I am. Send me. When God asks, like, who's going to teach our kids about Jesus in Redemption Hill Church? When God puts that question to you, you say, "What? here I am. Send me. When God asks, who's going to this Des Moines metro? To share God's loving plan of redemption. You want to respond. Just like Isaiah. Here I am. Send me. So I want to end where I began. You must strive to make and mature Disciples of Jesus Christ, right? We want to obey the Great Commission. However, the beginning of living on mission for God is beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where we need to begin. Redemption Hill Church exists to glorify God by, and then you can put a lot of things after that statement, dot, dot, dot. But let's begin by glorifying Him when we come together in corporate worship or living in a manner worthy of Christ, let's give him all the honor and glory due his name. Let's pray.